New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Uh, I'm just going to introduce Paul. He probably doesn't need any introduction. He's the chairman of the board of New Horizon. He's given several seminars before, and some of you have probably been to some of them. He's married, he has two teenage kids, and he has trained as a doctor, he's a pastor, he's a theologian, and uh, an apologist, and lots of other things as well. And you will find this a very helpful uh, seminar. Uh, I'm just going to pray for Paul now, and there will be time, Paul, for questions at the end, so just if, uh, if you have any questions at the end, we'll, we'll provide time for that, and I'll pass, maybe pass the mic around then if I can to pick up the questions. So let's just pray for Paul. Father, we just thank you um, for New Horizon. We thank you for this event, for your presence with us now, for your work in Paul's life and for this, the gifts and talents you've given to him. We just pray that you will anoint him with your spirit now, Lord, as he brings your message to your people. And we just pray also, Father, you'd open our hearts to receive the things that you want to teach us and that we'll not just hear them, but that we will be changed and our lives will be changed and that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Philip. Um, it is good to see you here. It's good to be sharing together on this theme. Uh, and obviously, this seminar is dealing with things like uh, fake news and echo chambers, the kind of world that we live in, and the sense of how do we know what is real, what is true. Uh, but also, I want to bring that to some kind of application in terms of how we can speak God's truth in the world. Um, just as we begin, uh, any anybody here got a sort of outstanding example or something that really hit you where there was a fake story, something that you realized was false, maybe got duped by, begun, began to believe it, shared it perhaps on social media and then realized actually it was false? Has that happened to anyone here? I suppose, has anybody ever been duped by anything or... No, we're all, well, then you don't need this seminar. We're all highly discerning people. Any who, yep. Oh, okay, right. And had you shared that or kind of, or? okay, there we go. So I don't know if folks heard that that was a celebrity status, uh, thought this person was married to someone, turned out they weren't and weren't likely to be. Okay, anyone else? I think there was one or two others. You don't have to embarrass yourself by sharing, but it always helps, doesn't it? It kind of <laughs> helps me anyway. Well, any other examples? I'm sure some of you do, and you're going through them in your head, but you just don't want to share them, and that's perfectly fine. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay, so that was somebody hacked in or scammed you, really. So that's part of the, the serious side of this, isn't it? That people scam, hack... That was something to do with Easter eggs, and then when you logged in, I got that once on WhatsApp, got a message uh, from a friend that said, um, I, I'm somewhere and I've got no money, and could you send me some? And that I thought, okay, well, of course, I wouldn't do that, but I messaged them back and said, okay, well, as soon as I then messaged them back, um, they, there was actually the login thing. They said, you know, we need some login thing. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll help them out with that, gave them that, and then somebody was able to get into my WhatsApp and uh, eventually I reclaimed it. But those things happen. So people sometimes maliciously want to deceive us. 
Sometimes we just accidentally misread something. We assume that something we've heard is true or right, um, and, and then we suddenly realize that it, that it wasn't. A any, any examples anybody think of in a, in a Christian setting of things that we've either been duped by or we've heard that someone was duped by? That's, you know, wasn't me, but a friend was told me once. I mean, I can think of some examples, but I'll probably share as we go along. But we're aware that we live in a world where there is deception, sometimes deliberately, sometimes we are misled uh, accidentally, but we need to be live to this. And I think increasingly so in the world we live in for a number of reasons. Now, just as I begin on the screen, it mentions the Center for Christianity in Society. And that is a local Irish um, charitable company that a few of us have set up, which is seeking to help the church with its engagement with culture, uh, training in what we might call apologetics and ethical issues, speaking into those both in the media, training Christians, and also evangelistically. So please check that out if you are interested in that. Either we might be able to help you in terms of training or with speakers, or you might be able to help us um, with prayer support, perhaps financially, um, but also maybe you're, you've got a gift in that area and a contribution to make. So please bear that in mind. I would love to hear from you. It's also a way to follow up with me after this seminar. But there are four things that I want to do in our time, and I will intersperse some interaction as we go along, so not just one block at the end. And feel free to put up a hand if you want to ask for clarification at any point. Lies we follow, discerning falsehood, stories we swallow, and then living and sharing God's story. So that's where we're going. The handout contains what's on the slides. Uh, you may want to make some notes around that as well. So lies that we follow. Again, we've, we've shared some of those. I mean, just one example, there were all sorts of things going around in social media about COVID and cures for COVID. And one of those was to do with garlic um, and that you could cure COVID with a bowl of freshly boiled garlic water. Okay, now that was false. But like many of these things, there was an element behind that, something true or possibly true behind that in that garlic seems to be good for our immune systems, okay? So there's a grain of truth, an element of truth, but that truth was distorted into something that was too simplistic, that was, okay, rather than preventative or helping you fight it naturally, this will cure it, claiming too much. So again, sometimes we're not dealing with an absolute falsehood, but a distortion and exaggeration, and of course that makes it harder to spot. And you might think, that's social media, that's the modern age. And there's some truth in that. This is a bigger issue in the modern age, but you go right back to World War I, and there were stories, this story in particular, about German cadaver factories in World War I, claiming that the German army were using the bodies of dead Allied soldiers uh, in horrific ways, completely false. And this one was, of course, generated by British and Allied intelligence as a way of motivating people and moving them to say this evil must be stopped. So there may be 
just exaggerations, distortions. There may be a deliberate intent to deceive. Sometimes in that case, you might say with a good end in mind, but actually, nonetheless, it's deceptive. And of course, it creates a bias that was unfair to the German people in World War I. And as Christians, we ought to be concerned about this. If we look at our scriptures, there's a lot that they say about truth, isn't it? The Ten Commandments don't bear false witness. We don't want to, and particularly in that context, to the harm of somebody in the courtroom, you're not going to tell a lie. But think about that more broadly. The truthfulness of what we say is vitally important. We could think of what it says in Ephesians about truth and read into Ephesians 3 and 4 and into 5. There is a lot there about how we speak truth to each other as Christians, how we grow up into the truth. And we could think of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. There he says that we don't twist or distort the word of God. Rather, we present it plainly to people, commending ourselves to people's consciences in the sight of God. The truth really matters. We could think, of course, the theme, the verse that gave us our theme for New Horizon, renewed minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2. That your minds will be transformed, renewed, that you will be renewed by the transforming of your minds, that you won't be conformed to the patterns of this world. And why is all of that? So that this is your reasonable act of worship so that you can discern what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. Discernment is a gift to the church. It's vital for us Some of us are better at it than others. Sometimes, in my observation, the people who are, that wee part of the body that is the discerning one who's always saying, ah, but, gets written off. Oh, just negative. Now, some people are just negative, okay? And that's a problem. And if that's you or me, we need to let God work at that by by his grace, don't we? But actually, it's a good thing that there are people in the church who are saying, ah, but, are we sure? Have we tested that? Have we checked So maybe because you're at this seminar, that's part of your gift, or maybe you're thinking, I need that gift. Let's see what we can learn together. And I've I've said that this has always been an issue, but in the last few years, people have talked about a post-truth society or culture in the Western world. And what that means, according to Oxford Dictionaries, is circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than emotional appeals, okay? In other words, politicians who appeal to the emotion but are thin on the facts, uh, movements, I mean, you can think of the examples, and I, and I think there is fault, by the way, on both sides, because sometimes it's put across that, It's all the people on the the right wing or the left wing or this side of the debate or that side of the debate. But what they have in common is this, that their way of moving people is primarily through emotional appeal, not objective fact. Now, you might want to think, well, what does that look like even within the church? Is it possible that preachers or leaders in the church could be doing the same thing? And this is not to say that emotions are bad. 
It is good that we feel, isn't it? We ought to feel. But if you think about emotions and, and thoughts, we, we tend to make a distinction between those two. In fact, I think Ben Stewart said something about that earlier in the week. But if I asked you, where do your thoughts happen? Point, point to the place where your thoughts happen. Would you do that for me? Yeah, okay. Where do your emotions happen? Anybody move it? I mean, we talk about the two-foot drop sometimes, but in fact, it's all happening up here, okay? And that's also very biblical because the scriptures talk about the heart, not the organ, but the inner person as the seat of both decisions and thinking and reasoning and feeling and emotion. These are not two separate things. They are two expressions of one thing, which is how we react and think. Uh, and actually, emotions, if you like, are unprocessed thoughts, or thoughts are processed emotions. And that is dangerous for us because sometimes we get swept along with our emotion and we don't stop to process that before we act. That's bad. And sometimes we tell ourselves that we're rational and we are doing this because we've thought it through. But all that we have done is to affirm the emotional impulse. So we're actually not really logical. We're just emotional. And what we've done is to justify. What we need, though, as God's people is reality and truth. And so in a post-truth world where emotional appeal matters so much more, it seems, than thinking, we ought to be people who stop and pause and are able to say, no, we need to discern what is true, not to be unemotional, not to not feel as well, not to just be cold. We're not called to be Mr. Spock or whatever, and it's logic alone, but actually that these are integrated together under the Lordship of Christ and around the truth of God. Of course, this is not new again. The prophet Isaiah talked about his day. He said, justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Why? Because the society of, of Isaiah's day had rejected the truth of God, was going after false gods, and idolatry in that sense always becomes self-justification that the gods that we create seem to give us what we want or absolve us of the responsibility that we should take, whereas the truth of God calls us to stand and admit who we truly are in our needs and to discover the truth that he has revealed. So it's not strange to us that our culture is post-truth in the sense of not really interested in discussing what is really true, what is right, even where the evidence points on some of the big issues of our day. And that makes it a challenge for us to engage with the world. But if we're going to do it, we ourselves, first of all, must care about truth. I'll skip over that slide. But what is it that fuel, fuels fake news. Why is it that in our culture today, fake news can spread so easily? Any, any thoughts on that? I have some, but you may have some of those, or you may have others that I haven't thought, and don't read it off the notes, because that's just, I see you, Philip, I know what you're up to. Right. <laughs> or you can read the notes if you want, don't worry. But any, any thoughts? What do you think makes, fuels fake news in our world? Wait, yeah. 
Okay, so there are things that we want to be true, and people like to gossip as well. So, you know, it's it's fun to gossip, isn't it? And and actually, we there are things we want to be true. Yeah. Yeah, there is a financial or a, or, a, or a motivation for gain. You make money by clickbait. You make money by, of course, accessing people's personal details. But you know, you make money by shares and so on. In in, in social media terms, it's by going viral that you start to monetize it yep okay so there is a culture of challenging authority yeah we don't trust authority figures so some of that is that there's a deep-seated distrust and in other words that's a fearful thing actually and some of it is just you know uh we're rebellious souls aren't we you know if they're uh, if there's a law in this country i'm again it as my grandfather used to say that's what the uh, you get off the boat and say, <laughs> if there's a law here, I'm against it. Yeah, so, so there's that in our hearts, and there's that, whether it's fear or whether it's rebelliousness, yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes? Okay. So accessibility of technology together with the individualization of that. I can be in a room of my own and just concocting stuff or without any external reference to check it out. Uh, and technology just makes things spread so quickly and, and globally and we can access all sorts of ideas, yeah? The ability to be anonymous, yeah? So you can create a fake profile and put stuff out. You can sort of, you know, um, th there's no accounting, no accountability, so there's an anonymity around that. I mean, some of the things I put here, motivation, we've said that for money, sex, and power. I'm afraid if you were in my seminars earlier in the week, I was talking about these being the big things that bring leaders down, but they're also the things that lead our hearts astray and that lead people to profit, gain from fake news, to hold on to power, to, uh, to get advantage in, in financial or sexual terms. Unacknowledged or denied biases even for us as Christian people, we need to realize that we like to hear stories that make it sound like our faith is advancing or, you know, it, it, sometimes it's in those areas that we need to be most careful because we want it to be true, this report, this news. I, I remember a few years ago, two incidents of this that really struck me. One was a book um, where... Uh, the claim, and some of you will know what I'm talking about, and surely you remember this, I won't name it, but there was a book where there was a claim of a miracle where uh, the man had been without food, or it said without food or water for 40 days. But I was looking at that as a medic, and, and it said in the book that the, the man was taken into hospital and given a drip. Now that is just not true therefore i'm not saying that god didn't sustain that person in miraculous ways for whatever period of time he was without food and water but he wasn't without any nutrition or uh, or hydration for 40 days so we shouldn't base we shouldn't write that in a book and claim that that was a miracle there's no advantage within that um, another example was a story of a of a resurrection but as i heard the story it was there was nobody who actually checked before the person was supposedly resurrected, that whether there was a pulse or breathing or not. Now, again, I'm not saying that God cannot do miracles if he chooses to. God is sovereign. But it doesn't do any of us any favors if we are spreading stories that actually someone who's discerning would say, you know what, you're just 
gullible. Gullibility is not a fruit of the Spirit, okay? And so we need to be discerning. Not cynical, not cynical, never cynical, but discerning and careful. And we need to know our own biases. Unintentional falsehood, just sharing without checking. Maybe that was the kind of status thing earlier, wasn't it? Social media allows anyone to post anything and reach everyone very quickly. Social media spreads stories through likes and shares. That tends to favor the sensational or the provocative. That's going to catch more attention, isn't it, than the mundane. Social media algorithms produce echo chambers. So algorithms, those programs in the background that select what you get shown. And they tend to show you what you've already liked. More of the same. So you're in your bubble believing what's said in there and somebody else is there in theirs believing what they... And of course, there's no real mechanism for debate or discussion across those chambers, partly because they're siloed off, partly because you can't have a good debate in whatever number of characters Twitter now allows um, or online. It's not the forum, is it? And of course, there's often more heat than light anyway, because you don't see a person eye to eye. You can't see the, the emotion and the response. So many reasons why this is a particular issue in our day. So how do we discern falsehood in the midst of that? What can we do about this? How can we guard against deception? Well, where does falsehood come from? If I asked you, why is there so much deception in the world? What would you say? As Christian people, what would we say? Satan is active, yes. There is satanic deception. He is the father of lies. He wants to lead people astray. That's true. That is correct. And sometimes we can underestimate that, underemphasize it as 21st century believers because we, we go much more quickly to the technology and the human and we forget about the unseen spiritual reality. But is that the only source of deception? Are all lies from, from the devil? Well, he certainly wants to stoke them up. He's certainly quite happy when they spread. But am I capable of creating a lie without him? I, I think so. The human heart is also deceptive, Scripture tells us self-deceptive and deceiving others for our own personal gain. And we are quite capable of doing that without any help at all from Satan. And so I need to watch my own heart and the hearts of others. And that means there are three things, which I think are all in this verse or these verses in Ephesians. The ways of the world, our culture, our society, other people around us have their ideas, their values, and we are surrounded by them in the media, social media, traditional media, and in the conversations on the high street. And the devil, like a prowling lion, is going around looking for someone to devour, Paul writes, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the heart, the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. <laughs> The old answers are sometimes the best, aren't they? Because we gratify the cravings of our flesh and follow its desires and thoughts. The fact is that the flesh, the sinful nature in us, loves to do its own thing. And anything that seems to affirm that or justify that is appealing to us. 
So we, we latch onto it. And even as Christians, even when the end thing is good and we think that would be great because that's a great story that people will help people believe the gospel, we might think the ends justifies the means, but biblically it never does. Scripturally, the end and the means must be right. So we, we should care about truth. So falsehood has three sources, and we need to be live to all of those. What we're hearing in the world, what's going on in our own hearts, and what the agenda of the evil one is. But God has not left us without resources for discernment. How do we discern what is true? Well, we can pray, can't we? we? We live just as the devil is active, so is the Spirit of God, guiding us towards truth, leading us and, and developing in us discernment and self-control and those qualities that allow us to be discerning. But it's not only the subjective experience of God and what He whispers to our hearts. Of course, He is the one who inspired the Word of God. And so the scriptures allow us to discern falsehood. Now, I will come back to this point, but please hear me. You know as well as I do that the, the scriptures don't contain the answer to every question that you face on social media. They don't tell you which party you should vote for or which side of the Brexit debate was right or which side of whatever it might be is right. But the scriptures do show us many truths that can answer many of the questions that we have as to whether certain choices that people make are right, whether adultery is right, whether murder is right, whether um, uh, certain things are moral or immoral. And more than that, what the scriptures do is to set the values. They show us what God values, what God cares about, which put the things that the world cares about and that my heart cares about in a very different perspective, doesn't it? In other words, it's not only the answers to the specific questions, but what Scripture does as we live and dwell in it, and as it begins to grow and develop in us, the Word of God, the living and active Word of God, it cuts into our hearts and it exposes our wrong desires, doesn't it? And it, it shapes the patterns of our thinking. I think Ben used the phrase, the grooves of our minds, Ben Stewart, earlier in the week. And it, it, it shapes how we think and what we care about and how we approach issues and how we approach people who differ from us. And of course, we have where there is the world with its values, we have the church, the community of God's people with which is being shaped by the Word and the Spirit of God. Other believers who have insights and perspectives, including the ones who are the discerning, but what, but, but, but what about? That's part of God's gift to us. We need one another. And we need to be people as Christians who therefore aren't just sitting in a room alone thinking, I can be discerning but are with others seeking wisdom. And when we're together, we need to be people who aren't simply talking about things divorced from what the world is thinking and doing, but who are taking the truth of God and applying it into. Christians, when they are together, ought to talk differently about the headlines than non-Christians. Agreed? 
because our our desire is to to learn from God what his perspective is and so often we get led astray because we on our own think I'm going to share that I'm going to do that I'm going to preach that and we could learn together because our desire is to speak the truth in love so that as a body we grow up into the likeness of Christ any comments or questions about that about those resources for discernment or about the causes of our sources of falsehood Okay, are we happy with, with that? But then some ideas about how we can, we can spot fake news, a story that is false. And you'll see these come from a few sources. First of all, we need to be on guard. We need to train our minds to think critically, which isn't the same as always criticizing, okay? But it does mean that I, I just stop and say, is that true? Is that, is that right? I'm on the guard because there is a prowling lion, because there are strong delusions in our culture, because there are strong deceptions in my heart. So training ourselves, the fact that you've come here means you want to do that, don't you? So being on guard, checking our own biases, especially if it's related to faith, knowing the things that we would quite like to be true, and therefore we're likely to be duped into believing. Or the things that we would quite like to be false and therefore are going to reject without thinking. And you can think about that in terms of our politics if you're from Northern Ireland like me. You know, instinctively because of how you've been brought up, because of the people you live amongst, you favor one version of the story over the other, don't you? So stepping back and saying, I've got to watch, might it be a spoof or a joke? (laughs) Okay, that's, you know, the classic April Fool story that... You sort of say, did you hear about it? And then you realize, oh, it's April Fool's Day. (laughs) Or, you know, so in other words, it might not be that somebody intended to deceive you. It's just you've you've kind of latched on to something that was a a joke all along. Check the source. There's a couple of people here have been students in some of my classes um, on degree courses. And this is something that gets drilled into them that you have to check your sources. Why would you believe this person? Why would you think that they are a credible source? What are their credentials? And that is both the source that created the story and the source that disseminates the story. Why would that be the place that I would go to for my news? Have they researched that? And what might their biases be as well? Examine the evidence. What are the references, the quotes and the dates? When did this story originate? You know, something comes out and it says, oh, you know, this is to do with COVID. And then you realize that it's a slight reworking of something that went around 10 years ago with um, SARS or whatever date that was, or 100 years ago with the Spanish flu or whatever it might be. Yep. No. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so newspapers have a bias. And being aware of that helps you to bring that together. And there are websites that try and do that, that actually trawl all of the, we- the, 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 the papers and they try and make sure they're trawling on both sides. So that can help us. There are fact-checking websites that might help us. But with web-based resources, sometimes just looking at the extension at the end of the URL, 
In other words, if it's, if it's a weird one, if it's not sort of .com or .co.uk, but something strange, then that is often an indicator. It's not a professional website. Not always, but it can be. Um, uh, and looking within the piece to say, okay, who, who, you know, such and such a study has proven such and such. Well, where? Where does that come from? Where's the original source? And if they don't include the original source, which is often the case, be very suspicious. Okay, because it's not often that even that we need to follow that up, just it generally isn't actually there at all. Okay, so why would that be? If you're going to put weight on this, where did the idea originate from? Who do they quote and is that quote credible? Is it actually from the person they claim to be quoting? Uh, what are the dates? So checking the date can often help you to see that there was an issue with that. And again, asking, is this a, a statement of opinion or of fact? And even in newspapers, they'll often separate editorial pieces from opinion pieces. And those carry a different level of credibility. It's not to say opinion pieces are always wrong, but they're not quite the same as something that's been researched as thoroughly by a journalist. What are other informed people or experts saying? Now, we've got to be careful because why do we trust them as well? It's, this is not straightforward. If it was, you wouldn't need an hour of a seminar, okay? So please don't think I'm saying this is simplistic, but, but we should get into that habit of saying, well, look, who would I trust? Who would I believe? Yeah, Leslie. Nudge unit, tell us about that, Leslie. Okay. So these kind of nudge tactics, um, Leslie's sharing about nudge unit, which is leaking things, um, not giving the full story. I mean, we, we see that increasingly actually in Westminster that things are leaked before they're announced in parliament. So before there's ever a chance to debate it or question it, it's already out there and widespread. And that's true, those things happen. I, I don't know much about the nudge unit. I have no idea, I'd need to look at your sources, Leslie, but yeah, yeah, you're okay. Aye. So have a look um, and check out the sources. But these things are, are real. That does We know that happens. It doesn't mean we have to be endlessly suspicious of everything, but it does mean we should ask those questions. Beware of distorted statistics and images. Uh, were you here the other night when I showed the picture of Alison Risbridger pulling out the cable? Some of you. Did anybody of you, were you suspicious of that? So why were you suspicious of that picture? Anyone? She was smiling, a cheeky smile, so why would she be doing that? Yeah? What else? It's unlikely, yeah. She allowed the photograph to be taken, and in fact, she was looking directly at the camera. Is that what you would do if you were being sleek at? No. Okay, anything else? What she was doing was dangerous, I know, and I set her up to do it as well, but okay. Um, yeah, it looked dangerous, anyway, it was perfectly safe. Anything else? How would you know where it was? I mean, there's all these things, and, and I'm a bit of a scallywag, and you could tell it was presented as a humorous piece. Anybody else notice what she was wearing? You see, if you'd been really observant, you would have noticed she was wearing the dress that she was wearing the, mo the morning of the day that I showed it, which I think, and I'm not observant enough to know, wasn't the same as the dress she was wearing the morning that the thing happened. <laughs> okay? But you see what I mean? And some of you would have noticed that because you've got, you've got a radar for what people wear that I don't have. So I'm saying there are ways to kind of think, would that really be? Now again, just trying to be careful. And images can be faked 
sometimes very, very convincingly. But there are things you can learn to look for. And, and if you're not sure, just, just put it in a compartment of not sure. So I'll not be too quick to share that or spread that. I'll hold that in reserve. But if you really think this really is important and matters, then you can do some research. You can, you know, there are people who can look at that and say there's evidence of t of, uh, that it's been tailored, although that's becoming more and, and more difficult with the technology that's available. Uh, statistics can be twisted. There's a brilliant program on BBC Radio 4 called More or Less, which examines statistics that have been in the news. And often they conclude, yes, those statistics are right. And sometimes they say they are misleading or there's a yes, but some of you will be good with statistics because you've trained in it. And some of you will just go fuzzy and, and that's okay because we're a community and a body. And if it seems too good or too bad to be true, it probably is, okay? Sometimes it's just that gut feeling that, that's just a bit, and that goes back to the what would I like to be true, okay? Now again, that sounds like a lot of hard work, doesn't it? But I'm trying to give you contours of what is it that you can do so that you can recognize any, as well as living in the word of God and living amongst the people of God. Don't lose that. Those are the foundations on the previous slide. These are just practical pointers. Any questions, comments, or additions to that list? Rebecca. Looking at yeah, the motivation. So, so it's qui bono, the who, who benefits. That's what lawyers use, isn't it? Like who, who could have benefited? So who would have had a motive to do this? And what is that motive and where? So absolutely. Yeah, looking for those things. Thank you. Any, any other comments or questions? Okay. Well, is that at least some help in terms of things you could think about and take away? Let's think then about stories that we swallow. So um, I'm expanding here to think not just about an individual claim. Somebody says this is true, and, and that's a claim that you can test out. But this goes to what I was saying earlier about when we live in the Scriptures, we aren't simply concerned about which details of the news that I heard this morning are right or wrong. What we are concerned about is which story am I living by? What do I believe is ultimately true? Why does any of this matter? What's it all for? Where is it all going to? Where did it all come from? Because the accumulation of the news stories that we listen to, all the little fact claims add up into a story about what matters, what's wrong, what the solution is, and where it's all heading to, and what we can do about it. Yeah? And, and we, as God's people, our gospel people are called to be. So we want to be people who live in God's story. Now, a story almost always has several shared elements. There is a beginning. It says plot here. I prefer to think about setting the scene. Once upon a time, there was a handsome prince who lived in it. Okay, you're setting the scene. How did it begin? And then something goes wrong, an inciting incident and rising action, often conflict or theft or somebody does, does something wrong and that builds and builds until you reach the third part, which is the climax, 
the turning point when someone solves the problem and then you have falling action where the, the solution begins to work out and things start to settle down and then you have the conclusion, the resolution, they all lived happily ever after. That's the fairy tale from, yep, in once upon a time to happily ever after. But it's also true in almost every movie that you've seen, except the experimental ones that don't have a narrative arc. In almost every testimony that you've heard of a person, in, in almost every book or novel that you've read, and in every big news story as well. Now, the challenge in our culture, and part of the reason for our post-truth culture, is that we are what people call post-modern. And... Jean-Francois Lyotard uh, pronounced or said that that is incredulity towards meta-narratives. So a meta-narrative is the idea of one big story that explains everything, where we all came from, where we're all going to, okay? But our culture rejects the idea, by and large, that there is one big story that's true for everybody. Or at least it says, if there is one, who knows what it is? Because you have your story, and your group has your story, their story. And I have my story, and my story isn't your story. I didn't begin in the same place, and, and I, you know, the issues I face aren't the issues you face. And, uh, and, and if you came from where I came from, you would see things the way I see it. And who knows what ultimate truth is if it even exists. So as Oliver Sacks, neurologist, some of you will know the name, uh, awakenings and so on, some of his famous books. But he says, each of us constructs and lives a narrative, and that narrative is us, that story. Now, I, I would question that just a little. I don't think it's quite true that all of us do this. I think some of us think more in propositional terms, facts. So some of you, if I asked you who you are, you would list off um, how many you know, the positions you've held and the job you've done and a list of people that are significant. Some of you will start to tell me a whole story. I'll not, I don't know, I mean, maybe there's a sex difference in that a little bit. The men will go more to the one way, women, but we're all different, aren't we? So, but the fact is that behind that, when we try to make sense of something, when we try to make sense of stuff, when we face a big problem, we like to be able to work out the story. What went wrong? What's the solution? What can I do about it? How can we have hope for the future? That's very deep within us. And that is a great thing, and it's a dangerous thing, because we spin the story to make ourselves look like the hero, or the other person look like the villain. And as Christian people, we believe, don't we? We accept, I've said it, we're gospel people. Therefore, there is a meta-narrative. It is God's big story. Yes? But let me give you a couple of examples of how I think this works out in the news. And let me be very, very clear here. I am talking about partial truths. I'm going to call them other gospels. Because the gospel is a narrative, a story, as well as a set of truths, and it's the true story of God that is revealed in the Scriptures. I'll present it in a moment. But every other big story that claims to be so important that it should change and dominate your life and your conversation in this moment is 
another gospel, which doesn't necessarily mean that it is untrue. It just means that it's not ultimate truth. You could think of the gospel of climate change. Not a claim about whether that's true or not. Those are the facts that we could check and the evidence we could look at. But for me, perhaps the bigger problem with that gospel of climate change is that it is not ultimate truth. You could think about the, the, the gospel of liberation or of rights for whichever group you want to think of. There may be truth in that. There was oppression and there is a solution. But it's not ultimate truth. Do you, do you see what I mean? It's not the gospel. Two examples that I will work through. The gospel of coronavirus. In 2019, things were brilliant. Do you remember? It was perfect, wasn't it? The world was good. It was excellent. Everyone was free. Life was good. But you say, ah, but <laughs> the discerning ones amongst you, that's not true. There's some truth in it, but it's not true in its full. Some of us lived constrained lives in 2019. Some just as constrained as all of us faced at the height of the pandemic. But something went wrong. Once upon a time, world was good. Something went wrong the virus. True, the virus spread. True, the virus was a risk to health. You could have a debate and question the degree of that, but there was a problem. But it wasn't the only problem that went wrong in the world, even over the last two or three years, was it? The people who didn't have safe drinking water in 2019 still didn't have it in 2020 and still don't have it today. The people who were on waiting lists for operations are probably still on them today. Those problems are also there, aren't they? You see, it's not the full story is what I'm saying. It's not to say it's not important or untrue, but it's not the full story. And it's also true, isn't it, that our experience of that kind of revealed some things about who we are, didn't it? both in our fearfulness and in our selfishness, as well as sometimes in our generosity about caring for others around us, the strange contradiction of the human heart. A lot that we could learn about how we reacted to the, the pandemic. But the climax, there's a savior, isn't it? And it's the scientists or the politicians and the scientists. So the right now, this is the point at which some of you say, really? But we could have a debate about the rights, wrongs, exact detail of that, couldn't we? But the, my point here is more that, that whatever the truth of that, and I tend to think, yes, I'm thankful for those scientists who worked hard. I'm thankful for politicians who tried to do their best with limited information and poor preparedness and all of that to, to do what they could do. But, but my bigger question here is that was the coronavirus pandemic, the biggest issue the world faced in 2020? Well, there were all of the other issues that were going on in the world, but most importantly, from a Christian point of view, there was the issue of sin, wasn't there? And our alienation from God, that was still the biggest issue in 2020, and it's still the biggest issue today. And what do we do? There's an action we can take, get jab, double jab, triple jab, quadruple going to be pin cushions by 2030. Again, I'm not trying to besmirch that, distract. This is not a talk about whether the vaccine is good or right or who should get it, although I would love to talk about that some other time to any of you. But my point here is that that's the, the response that's being called for, but it's not ultimate truth, isn't, is it? Because not everybody can take the vaccine. 
And, and it's not as simple as this is what's right for everybody. And what about the people in the world who don't have access to it whilst we go for our fourth or fifth jab? There's a bigger story. And of course, the bigger story of all is the gospel. What is the true response that we ultimately need to make? Because where are we heading to? The coronavirus story says freedom for what is my question. Freedom for what? I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we have freedom. Isn't it wonderful that we can be here without the restrictions that we had? But for what? So that we can just hang around a bit longer until the next virus comes and takes us? Or something else kills us? You see my point. And it's the same with the gospel of conflict in Europe. There was a time when Europe was at peace. Perhaps, but of course, was that really true? Were there no wars in Europe? Was there no conflict at any level? What about other parts of the world? Why is it that war in Europe shocks us so much when war in the Middle East or Africa doesn't? What does that say about our values and our biases? And of course, there was a problem, and it's a ma we always like to have one person. And if the Russian people have voted for him and support him, that's because they've been duped and misled. Well, maybe or maybe not. But the story that we hear in the media is very much one perspective, isn't it? And there's a savior figure. And there's a response that we can make or try to make. And there's a goal. Peace, which is usually in conflict situations, peace on our terms, isn't it? Now, again, I'm not trying to get into a debate or a discussion about the rights or wrongs, although I do think we need to be more careful because our media will present things from our perspective in our place. And as Christians, we should be able to be a little bit more balanced and discerning. At the very least, as Christians, we ought to be praying not only for Ukrainians who are suffering, who are, but also Russian people who are suffering, whether that's the soldiers who are being sent in or their families who are being bereaved. You see what I mean? So we should have a bigger perspective. But the biggest problem with this is it's not the biggest story in Europe today. Because the biggest story for the world and for Europe and for you and me is the ultimate truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that story has a beginning, and it's a very good beginning. Creation, what God made us for who God is, and the fact that God is sovereign and good. For God so loved the world. And what is the story of the problem with the world? It isn't primarily the stuff that is wrong with the world around us, though that is there. It is what's wrong in here, isn't it? It's the rebellion of the human heart. And I will say this, I've noticed that as evangelicals or as Christians, we're increasingly talking about a, a broken world and broken people. Have you noticed that? I think I know what people mean, but I don't recognize it in the scriptures. That's not the primary way that scripture talks about our problem. It's not even the primary way it talks about the world. Scriptures tell me that the world is not broken. It is still working perfectly well according to God's plan and purpose. The world is not broken. It has been subjected, as Romans 8 says, by the one who subjected it to frustration and decay 
for the purpose that God is bringing it to of revealing his children in glory. So you see how quickly, how easily we start to use ways of describing things that aren't actually the terms that the Bible uses. Happy to have a discussion about that and to be corrected if I'm wrong, but let's be careful. Because if the world is broken, the next question should be, who broke it? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? And, and so what we're doing sometimes in that is to absolve ourselves of responsibility. And, and actually, when we do that, there's no solution. Because if I'm not responsible, I can't be forgiven. The gospel says, no, I am the problem. My rebellion against God, my alienation, which, yes, all sorts of things are wrong with me because of the genes I inherited and the things that were done to me. Please don't mishear me. I am not belittling that. But until I can recognize that I am also a sinner before God, then, then where is the hope? <laughs> yeah. And the solution, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave, 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 gave so much, so many blessings, so many good things, and ultimately gave his word and his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us and rise victorious from the grave. That's the climax. This is the true story. It's why stories are so compelling to our hearts. It's why we love stories and we love telling them. And there's a response which is so that those who believe in him, to repent from my sin, to trust in the Lord Jesus, to acknowledge him as Lord, that those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. You recognize it, don't you? It's just a little handle on, on the, these five movements of the gospel story. Creation, sin, Christ, my response, the hope that is before me. God rules, I rebelled. God rescues, I respond, God restores. I could take much longer to try and unpack that, but what I'm trying to say is we must never lose sight of the fact that this is the big story and the other stories are not unimportant. Please, again, hear me say that. And they all make sense within this story. Why did this happen? Why is that wrong? Well, this is the story that will tell you the why. But it's also the story that gives ultimate hope, ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose in a world where the little stories, and, and I don't mean that derogatory in a derogatory sense, both my individual story and the little news stories about big news events are only one part of this that find meaning within this. Time is up almost, but five practical principles then that I can take away when it comes to stories. First of all, engage with the world's stories critically. You read them, you watch them, on the screen, in the cinema, on your TV, engage critically with it. Look for the story. What does this person say, not just about the problem and the solution, but about where we came from and where we're going to? Where's hope within that story? Because none of these other gospels have ultimate hope, do they? They promise a limited version of hope, but not the ultimate hope of what God and God alone can do, which is that one day he will make all things new, restore everything. He and he alone can do it. Reform your narrative around God's meta-narrative, God's big story, the gospel. Work at that. Hold on to it. Make sure you're consuming that at least as much as you're consuming the news or the gossip on the street. 
Make sure your values are shaped by that. Prize and preserve unity in the gospel. Such a tragedy that Christians have found themselves fighting and divided over some of the news stories. We shouldn't. Because we should be able to say that we may see that differently, including local politics and whatever else it might be. But that's not the ultimate story, is it? So even if we never come to an agreement on it, let's park that about how we should respond to coronavirus and whether we should be doing the service this way or that. Please, 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 let's not allow the enemy to come in, not only with a lie about a particular fact claim, but with a lie that tells you that this story and, and making people agree with me on that is more important than this story. What a tragedy locally that we can't get into government because some won't go into government over an issue like the REC border. I'm not saying it's unimportant. Please don't mishear me. I don't like it. <laughs> but that they were willing to go into government over when, when abortion laws changed without saying that's a red line. Where does that come from? Sorry, that's a, I shouldn't have probably said that, but that's a whole other seminar. But what really matters here? The value of a human life or where a line is drawn on a map? You see the difference in those, don't you? It's not that one is important and the other isn't, but one is much more important than the other. And listen well to the stories of others. Don't make assumptions. When somebody uses a label to describe themselves, you're smarter than that, aren't you? I'm sorry, not smarter than that person. I mean, you're smarter than just making an assumption that you know what that label means. Ask them their story. What's that like for you? What's that been like for you? And then see how their story connects with the gospel story. Where is the ultimate truth? Where is, what is it about the beauty of God's creation and them as the creation of God that they haven't got yet? Is it the existence of God? Is it the idea that God could love them? Is it the idea that they have any value whatsoever? What is it about sin that they haven't got yet? Is it because they're fixed in the idea that they are a victim and not someone who is also guilty? Or is it the other way around, that they feel false guilt for things that aren't their responsibility? Or is it because they have chosen a lifestyle and will not accept that that night might not be right? What is it about sin? Who, what is it about Jesus that they haven't heard or understood and how he is Lord over this? What is it about the response that is needed that they haven't made? And what is it about the hope of glory that they haven't been captivated by yet? And this is not just for non-believers. This is for each of us, isn't it? Wouldn't it be brilliant if we went out and started preaching the gospel to each other? And the next time a Christian says to you, isn't it awful what happened and, you know, what's happening over there or what this or that? And you said, yeah, you know it is. And it'd be, we could talk all day about that. But, but, but what does the gospel say about this? Where is God in and through and over this? And above all, in evangelism, let's be utterly truthful. I have, I'm sorry, maybe I'm too discerning, i.e. I'm just cynical. Um, but actually, this is a word to preachers. Fact check your, your sermon illustrations, would you? The reason I'll, I'll skip those quotes, they're on the page, I think. Because I've heard too often sermon illustrations that when I've checked them out, they didn't sound true, and it turned out they weren't. Have you ever heard the one about the Arthur Conan Doyle? I think we started five minutes late, so I'm working on that basis, and I'll stop in one, one minute. That No, genuinely we did, so I'm reclaiming that. Sorry, if you do need to leave, please do. But Arthur Conan Doyle 
sent out a letter to 12 people in London saying, all is discovered, flee, just anonymously, and they all fled the country. Have you ever heard that one? No, some of you haven't. Don't go to the same churches as Colin and I do. <laughs> okay. But that's a wee story. Now, it's not a bad illustration, but it didn't actually happen. Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> didn't ever do that. You can still use the story. Just say the story is told, or imagine if, or, you know, someone rather than a historic person. So in other words, let's have truth consistently through what we say. And that means sometimes, and a whole lot of things in the news and so on, we just say, actually, you know what, I don't know. Don't have a baldy, don't have a scooby-doo, don't understand it. But let me tell you what I do know, this one thing I know. Much better to stick to what we do know, isn't it, than, than worry about and debate what we don't. And to say there are some things that are too big for me to understand, but I'm trusting God, so let me tell you about my Savior. Because he's the character who never disappoints. He's the one who doesn't actually fit in any lesser story if he's not lord over it. And he's the one who fulfills every longing in every story. Now, time is up. Let me pray for you. Father, take us away safely from this uh, seminar, from this week. Help us to work into our minds, into our hearts, whichever way we think of that, these truths and these principles. Help us to keep sharpening each other in this. And help us above all to be people of confidence in the gospel and in our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Shape us increasingly by the truth of this story. Give us discernment to recognize the lies of the evil one and the deception of our own hearts. Help us to guard one another and to seek what is true and good and beautiful and the wisdom that is found in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989. And we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry.